Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. Should be page 575 in your pew Bibles. Although our focus will be on verses 3 through 16, we are going to begin with verse 1. This is the living word of Christ. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamat, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Verse 16, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we ask for the same Holy Spirit who rested upon your son at his baptism, who empowered him to cast out the serpent in his earthly life and in his death and resurrection, the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and has been poured out on your church, strengthen us now by your Holy Spirit who wrote your Bible to give us understanding, Lord, that we might bear fruit through our union with Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Last week we saw in Isaiah 11:1 that although Israel had been cut down as a fruitless tree, cut down to a stump, God was still faithful to his promise to raise up a descendant of David 
from the line of David, from the stump of Jesse, the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be true Israel, the true fruit-bearing tree, the true vine, causing all united to him to bear fruit. We also saw in verse 2 that Messiah was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism to equip him for his saving work. This morning, our focus from verse 3 to the end of the chapter is this, seen in our main point. In his first coming, Messiah judges the kingdom of Satan and gathers his Jew-Gentile people, promising to come again to renew the cosmos. To sum it up, Messiah comes to set all things right. Messiah comes to set all things right. To judge the wicked, namely the serpent and demons in his first coming, and then all of the wicked who follow Satan at his second coming. To gather his scattered people back to himself. To make a new heavens and a new earth. Total renewal. Complete salvation. One word that sums it all up. Shalom. Wholeness. Holistic well-being and redemption. The first way that we see the root of Jesse coming to set things right is the root of Jesse's just judgment in verses 3 to 5. 700 years before Messiah's birth, God is speaking in our text through Isaiah to promise the Messiah as the all-wise ruler who comes to administer justice perfectly by setting all things right. In verse 3 and 4, we see the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling the blueprint that God set for a king in Deuteronomy 17. One who fears the Lord, who does not make judgments based on outward appearances, but based on God's standard of righteousness in his word. Unlike many of Israel's leaders, Messiah would perfectly protect the weak and the vulnerable from those who would exploit them. Look at all of the closely related justice words here in verses 3 to 5. The verb to judge means to do justice. It has as its root the word for justice. Notice it's parallel with he shall decide disputes. In the Old Testament, Moses decided various cases and disagreements and controversies for Israel. When that was too overwhelming for him, the Lord told him to choose elders. See, Presbyterianism is in the Old Testament as well. And these elders had the Holy Spirit upon them to decide cases. But this office of judge was insufficient. So the Lord said, when you go into the land, choose a king whom I will set over you one who judges and decides cases, not with the world's standard of righteousness, but with God's standard of righteousness, with equity, with fairness, with uprightness. And so we saw last week in verse 2 that the Spirit of the Lord rested upon Messiah to equip him with wisdom that he might discern between good and evil. And here this morning we see that that wisdom from verse 2 that comes from the Holy Spirit has much to do with justice, righteousness, and equity. In other words, the Davidic king's spirit-wrought wisdom leads to justice and righteousness. 
Notice the similarities between the opening verses of Proverbs and Isaiah 11. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, it's written by Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom, to know understanding, to produce what? Righteousness, justice, and equity. Likewise, in Isaiah 11 too, the son of David, the root of Jesse, is endowed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding to have the knowledge of the fear of the Lord to equip him to do justice, to decide cases with righteousness and equity. Isaiah is showing Messiah is the ultimate son of David king, wiser than Solomon, endowed by the Holy Spirit of wisdom to equip him to judge with righteousness. These words probably sound very familiar if you watch the news nowadays or you're tuned in on social media. Everyone's talking about justice and equity. Friends, our text makes quite clear that Messiah's justice is much different than the worldly distorted version of justice. For instance, the critical social justice movement has redefined justice and equity to mean distributive justice. To take from those who have and redistribute it to those who do not. Brothers and sisters, that's not justice, it's stealing. Instead of equity having to do with equal opportunity, impartiality, equal treatment under the law, equity's been redefined by critical theory, to mean equal outcome. And if there's not equal outcome, it must be because of some ism. Racism, sexism, genderism, or some form of phobia. Everyone should receive the same grades, everyone should make the same amount of money, regardless of how hard they work. That's not justice. That is simply Partiality, it's injustice, it's inequity. What is partiality? It's not what the Lord Jesus Christ does. The Lord Jesus Christ makes judgments not based on outward appearance. He does equity not based on what his eyes see or his ears hear, but according to God's word. Leviticus 19.15 gives us the definition of partiality. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial, literally in the Hebrew, you shall not be a lifter of faces to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. That phrase, lifter of faces, which is translated being partial, speaks to the fact that oftentimes we make decisions or we seek to please people for the praise of man, so that they might praise us. But impartiality is what our Lord Jesus Christ said in John 7, 24, what Pastor Dale read to us for a confession of sin. Jesus lives out impartiality. Do not make judgments based on outward appearances, but rather judge with righteous judgment. Brothers and sisters, let us continue to view justice through the lens of God's word as the source of justice. And there aren't many worldviews filled with more partiality than I can think of than critical race theory. 
sizing people up, categorizing them based on man-made categories of race, using the past real historic oppression, real historic racism, labeling it now onto the present to accuse and indict people based on outward appearance or to excuse people of being incapable of being uh, impartial or racist. It's quite clear, brothers and sisters, this world is longing for a righteous leader, an all-wise governor, a prince of peace with just policies. And at the end of the day, it's only in Christ. We should be praying for our leaders to reflect the justice in Scripture. And we should be voting and making decisions in our community based on that. But at the end of the day, we won't find it this side of the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord Jesus Christ has just policies, and we have them in our hands. They're in his word. Notice that in verse 4, Jesus renders a saving justice, a saving righteousness, there in yellow, and a condemning justice, there in red. With justice he shall judge, literally, he shall do justice for the poor. But it also says that he shall strike and kill the wicked, referring to his condemning justice. This brings into view, as we sang from Joy to the World and heard in Psalm 98, first, Messiah brings about a righteousness and justice of salvation. Who does Jesus do justice for based on righteousness? Notice it says it's for the poor. This word can mean those impoverished, lacking uh, material resources. It often has to do with the fatherless and the orphan, the widow, who needed protection. But Isaiah's made quite clear through his book that at this time in Israel's history, many wicked leaders of Israel got rich by exploiting the righteous, causing the faithful to be afflicted, often bringing about material poverty. This reminds us of the book of James, where believing Jews experienced so much persecution, it led to financial poverty. So it is today with many Christians. So when you see the word poor, don't just think necessarily of a social class, and don't label a skin color to it either, please. This word poor also means afflicted or meek. We see that in the parallelism. Isaiah, with his Hebrew poetry, says one thing and then unpacks it often in the next line. The poor are the meek of the earth. These two words for poor and meek are found in Zephaniah 3.12, translated the humble and the lowly, in contrast with the proud and the arrogant. It's interesting, this word meek from Isaiah 11.4 is also used in Psalm 37, verse 11. The meek shall inherit the land. The word land in Hebrew can also be translated earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. That sounds quite familiar. In fact, I think I've read that in the New Testament. In the book of Matthew, chapter 5, where Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And we know from that context, the meek are also the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is who Messiah has a saving righteousness for. Who are the poor? The meek, the afflicted, the lowly, the humble, often the persecuted, suffering children of God. We know you can be financially poor and be quite arrogant. 
And you can actually be financially wealthy, but be poor in spirit. Therefore, doing justice for the poor and needy is especially seen in our Lord Jesus Christ's life and his compassion on the leper, his compassion on those who are oppressed by demons, his mercy and forgiveness for prostitutes. Isaiah 42 is a very helpful commentary inspired by the Holy Spirit on Isaiah 11. Notice Isaiah 42. The Lord speaking of his servant, his Messiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Just what we saw in Isaiah 11 too. And what will he do by the spirit? He will bring forth justice to the nations. And look who the poor are. Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Referring to our Savior's lowly, tender, and humble, gentle heart to those who are broken. So who are the poor? You are. I am. That's how I got saved. The Holy Spirit showed me, reading the Gospel of Luke, I'm the leper. I'm the crippled man. I'm the prostitute. I'm the demon-possessed guy. And Christ wants me. I'm spiritually bankrupt. When it comes to the righteousness that God requires, we have nothing to offer God. We come to the table with nothing. Correction. We come to the table with our sin, with our unrighteousness. But what does Messiah do for the poor in spirit, for the contrite in heart, those broken over their sin in righteousness? He does justice for them. It can be translated in the Hebrew with righteousness. He shall vindicate. He shall justify the poor. And see, the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, he comes to set things right. But he knew that God the judge had a dispute to settle with you and me because of our sin. And so in his first coming, he came to settle that dispute to make us right with God, to take judgment on himself, to transfer his righteousness to our account, to take our unrighteousness and place it on himself, suffering the wrath of God in our place on the cross, to be raised from the dead for our justification. As we heard in Psalm 98, righteousness is often in line with salvation. So also in Isaiah 51.5, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. Brothers and sisters, God's righteousness is a person. Here, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, with similar language to Isaiah 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up a branch. I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. What's that look like? Verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. One of my favorite names for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is our righteousness. Our righteousness is Christ himself who fulfilled the righteous law and took the righteous judgment we deserve 
and was raised from the dead. So if you are here today and you want Jesus to make all things right, all around you, set things right, first, you must admit your own guilt and admit you're not right with God. And your only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he promises to justify all who believe with the righteousness that he earned in our place, in his life, death, and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, Messiah doesn't just come with saving righteousness, also with a condemning justice, a condemning righteousness. Isaiah 11, 4 to 5, depict Jesus as a warrior king who comes in righteousness to put to death the wicked. And once again, what do you know? Isaiah has a chiasm, a poetic structure that's a teaching tool where the top and the bottom lines go together and the meat in the middle as well. Notice that the top and bottom lines show the action words carried out on the wicked by the Messiah. He shall strike, he shall kill. And the meat in the middle, they're the instruments or the agents that Messiah executes judgment with. It's with the rod. This is referring to a king's scepter, which comes out of his mouth. And it's with the breath of his lips. This word breath is ruach, spirit. Same word from verse 2. With the spirit that comes out of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. The Greek Old Testament that translates the Hebrew has a striking interpretive translation. Rod of his mouth is translated word of his mouth. The point is this, the Holy Spirit word is the Messiah's royal scepter proceeding out of his mouth to judge the wicked with a condemning justice. Word and spirit. No wonder Revelation 19.15 says, he who is called the word of God will return again with a sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. 2 Thessalonians 2 says Jesus will come back and kill the man of lawlessness by the breath of his mouth. Referencing Isaiah 11. When is this going to happen? In his first coming or his second coming? Yes. <laughs> Messiah's just judgment of the wicked is not just at his second coming. In his first coming... Who did Jesus begin to judge with a condemning justice? Satan and his kingdom. Satan and demons. Immediately after the Spirit of the Lord rested upon Jesus at his baptism, where did the Holy Spirit lead Jesus? Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for Jesus to overcome him? How? With the rod of his mouth, with the word of his mouth, with the breath, the spirit of his lips, the word of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has come, born in a manger, as a warrior. Christmas is a war against the kingdom of darkness for him to grow up and overthrow the serpent. He began tearing down the kingdom of Satan in his first coming. Notice verse 5 speaks of Jesus being clad in the garments of righteousness, which Isaiah 59 unpacks as Messiah putting on righteousness as a garment and the helmet of salvation. Hmm, sword of the Spirit. 
breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation. That sounds familiar. Friends, Jesus wore the whole armor of God first to overthrow the serpent in his first coming. And he gives us himself as our armor so that when we face temptation, when we face Satan, whose works have begun to be destroyed but is not completely vanquished in the lake of fire yet, we can overcome by the sword of the Spirit, with the shield of faith, with the breastplate of righteousness that Christ wore first. God clothes us in his Son. The weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds. So in his first coming, the Lord Jesus Christ began to execute judgment not necessarily on sinners yet, but on the kingdom of darkness. He began casting out Satan and demons by the Holy Spirit. Notice how Jesus connects him casting out Satan, casting out demons by the Spirit with the coming of the kingdom. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. As we'll see later, What Jesus did to overcome Satan in the wilderness and cast out demons is concluded by his judgment upon the ruler of this world at the cross. Therefore, Vern Poitras helpfully says, the coming of the kingdom of God is the defeat and undoing of the kingdom of Satan. There can only be one sheriff in town, friends, and it's the Messiah. When Jesus returns, he'll finish what he started. In his first coming, the emphasis of his judgment was on him judging Satan and demons. But when he returns, he'll judge all who are led by Satan and demons. All in Satan's kingdom. He'll strike the wicked with eternal death. A crucial part for him setting all things right. And the fact that he came already one time beginning to judge the kingdom of darkness, guarantees he'll return to throw Satan and all of his followers into the lake of fire. But what will he do for his people? He'll make a new heavens and a new earth and give us resurrection bodies. And this brings us to our second point. The root of Jesse renews the cosmos. That's the image there in verses 6 to 9. Speaking of God's holy mountain, the new earth filled with the knowledge of the Lord. But notice this picture of the fullness of shalom, holistic well-being, where everything is made right, uses a bunch of animal imagery. Look at this vivid picture of shalom with animal peace. Look at verses 6 to 7. There's sets of animals, pairs of animals, and one of the pairs is a beast of prey a carnivore there in red. And the other is paired together with a tame, a farming animal there in green, a herbivore. But now the carnivore is no longer devouring the herbivore. There's the wolf, leopard, lion, and bear now dwelling peacefully with the lamb, goat, and calf. And now the bear and the lion are eating grass and straw. Should we take this image as literal? I believe we should. I don't think this is just symbolic because this is not apocalyptic literature like Daniel in Revelation and parts of Ezekiel. Nor is Isaiah's goal, hate to burst your bubble, 
to give you hope that your favorite pet will be in heaven. Sorry. I do believe that this is showing there will be animals in heaven because Jesus will renew this earth and completely transform it. This is pointing to that. But the shalom peace depicted amongst animals demonstrates the renewal of the earth and the removal of the curse. No rhyme intended. The renewal of the earth and the removal of the curse. How so? Because Adam was given dominion over the beasts, to subdue the beasts. He was given dominion over the earth. Did Adam succeed? He did not. Because of his sin, the curse of Adam is seen in animals being hostile toward one another and toward humans. And that hostility is literal, so we should take this literal. Recall Romans 8, 19 to 23. It speaks of the whole creation being subjected by God to futility, groaning and longing for the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. And one of the marks of that futility of the curse is beasts devouring other animals and humans. But once the Son of God appears and resurrects the children of God, all of creation will be renewed. As we sang, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Isaiah is prophesying paradise, a new Eden. Not just a return to what Adam had, because he was called to subdue the earth and the beasts, and he failed, but not the second Adam, the Messiah. But isn't it striking? There's not only much mention of animals, but small children. Three times between verses 6 and 8, we have mention of children, a little child, a nursing child, the weaned child. What's going on here? And it, not to mention in verse 8, they are over, they have authority over serpents, over cobras and vipers. What's with these little children showing authority and dominion over the serpent? This is to recall God's promise of an offspring, a child, who would come to crush the head of the serpent. At his birth, the Lord Jesus began dwelling peaceably with sheep and oxen to overthrow the serpent, born in a manger, born in an animal stall. And after the wilderness temptation, Mark 1 says, Jesus was with the wild animals. Why that strange detail? To show the dominion over the beasts has begun. In fact, the same word in verse 8 is used for the nursing child in Psalm 8, verse 2, for infants. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have ordained strength because of your adversaries in order to destroy the enemy. Babies and infants worship will destroy the enemy. David then goes on to talk about the Lord putting all things under the feet of the Son of Man, all sheep, oxen, and beasts. And here it is in Isaiah, beautifully, vividly forecasted. But it's also quite likely we have a promise, friends, that infants are present in heaven. Small children, toddlers. Whether covenant children who have passed away ahead of their parents such, such as our young Johanna Brindle, your brother and sister, our daughter, or aborted babies 
In a nutshell, we have a reminder, the kingdom of heaven belongs to little children. All this to say, Isaiah was Presbyterian. But seriously, the true, he was, and he will be. There will be the elders gathered around the throne of the Lamb. We'll get to that later. But the point of verse 8 is that the cobra and the viper being subdued points to the fact the works of the devil will be completely overthrown when Messiah returns. In verse 9, it's clear there'll be no more death, no more destruction, no more sorrow or pain, no more evil or sin or suffering because God will dwell with his people, Emmanuel himself, in the new earth, which is the holy mountain, the new Jerusalem. And again, look what the earth will be filled with. The knowledge of Yahweh. The knowledge of the Lord. Just as Jesus was endowed with the spirit of knowledge. He gives his people intimate knowledge of himself. Habakkuk 2.14 quotes this and expands it. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the covenant of grace. The heart of the covenant. Messiah upon whom rests the spirit of knowledge, has been raised from the dead to circumcise our hearts by his spirit and cause us to know him intimately in face-to-face fellowship, which we have begun to know him now in part, but then in fullness. This is what heaven's all about. If you want to go to heaven just so you won't go to hell, you likely aren't going to heaven. But if you want to go to heaven because you know you deserve hell and you want to know the one who died to save you from it, this is what it's all about, to know the Lord, the heart of the covenant, brothers and sisters. But before Jesus renews the cosmos, renews the universe, renews the world, the root of Jesse would begin gathering his people in his first coming, which brings us to our third point. The root of Jesse gathers his people. The root of Jesse gathers his people. When does he do that? In that day. In that day. Twice. This phrase in Isaiah marks the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, both to judge his enemies and save his people. In that day refers back to Isaiah 2.2. In the last days, when the word of the Lord goes forth out of Jerusalem and the nations, all nations, come up, teach us your word, O God. Go and make disciples of all nations. And when did the word of the Lord begin to proceed out of Jerusalem? At Pentecost. The last days marks the whole time between Jesus' first and second coming. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand. In verse 1, Messiah was merely a shoot, a small twig coming forth from the stump of Jesse, referring to his humble beginnings in his birth we saw last week. But he is now branched forth into a full-blooming, fruit-producing tree who stands to gather his people. Remember what John says in his vision in Revelation 5. I saw a lamb standing. He's the root of David. Even though he's been slain, now I see him standing. The Lord Jesus Christ has been crucified and raised to regather his people, and he stands 
to work a second exodus. Notice this focus. Messiah gathering his people is described as a second exodus. Look at verse 11. The Lord will extend his hand. Remember the hand of the Lord that saved Israel out of Egypt. He'll extend his hand yet a second time. The first time was at the exodus. And notice in verse 16, the Lord's going to raise up a highway to bring his people to himself, just as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. A second exodus. The Lord Jesus Christ sets his people free from sin and Satan by his death and resurrection. So no wonder Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and in Luke 9, 31, they spoke with him about his exodus that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. But see, it's not only a second exodus, it's a reversal of Babel. Notice that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to gather back all the sons of Ham, sons of Japheth, and sons of Shem who put their faith in him. These are the nations mentioned there. We have nations who are the descendants of Ham, Egypt and Cush, from the descendants of Japheth. We have the coastlands, that's the descendants of Japheth. We have the Shemites, the Israelites. And those who are dispersed, that's the word found at Babel, he regathers them back to himself. There's even mention of Shinar, where Babel was. And so the Lord Jesus Christ comes to work a second exodus to regather his scattered people back to himself. And brothers and sisters, I want to now zoom in, in closing, on this phrase. The main thing I want us to see this morning is that in order to gather his people, Messiah is a signal. In verse 10 and 12, the root of Jesse stands as a signal. The Father raises him up as a signal. The Lord raises him up. Yahweh raises up the root of Jesse as a signal. What in the world is a signal? This word refers to a standard that's lifted up in battle. It's a war flag raised to be a rallying point for the troops. When the banner is lifted up, it's a central rallying gathering point. It's first found in Exodus 17:15. For the Lord is my signal, the Lord is my banner. The signal that Israel had defeated the enemy. And so there's two main purposes for the signal as a battle flag. The first is to summon troops to come and attack. To summon an army for an assault, a military attack. Jeremiah 51, 27 says, set up a standard, set up a signal on the earth. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations for war against Babylon. Summon against her the kingdoms. But I don't think that's how it's being used here. Because now the root of Jesse stands as a signal, not against, but for the peoples. That's referring to the various people groups, for the various Gentile people groups. He's not against, but for the benefit of the Gentile nations, causing them to inquire of him, to seek him. And so the second, person, second purpose of a signal is likely being used here. And what is that? A signal is raised to declare, victory's accomplished. We've won the fight. 
The battle is over. Salvation, victory is ours. This is how it's used in Isaiah 62 there on the screen. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build the highway. Same word from our passage. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, look, check it out. The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, it's the gospel. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Moses uses this word for the standard lifted up high as the bronze serpent that any who were bit by the fiery serpent might look upon and live. We know our Lord Jesus Christ says that refers to him. And so the Lord will raise up a signal for the nations to assemble the banished of Israel for the nations, Gentiles, for the banished of Israel, Jews. And our closing question, when was Messiah lifted up? When was he raised up as a signal to become a central rallying point to save his people? Even before he would be lifted up as the exalted, resurrected king of the universe, Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross to draw the all, to draw his all to himself. And notice, when Jesus is lifted up from the earth, he draws, literally in the Greek, the all to himself. All his people, it's referring to. And when he does that, verse 31 from John, it brings judgment on the ruler of this world. And him being lifted up refers to the death that he was to die. Because when Christ was crucified, he was reconciling the world, all who had put their faith in him, to the Father, to gather them to himself, to gather the children of God who had been scattered abroad. And then he would be lifted up in resurrection. And now he stands as the raised signal, the exalted Messiah, is the rallying point for the nations and the people groups saying, come to me, come to me. That's why we proclaim the gospel every single week from this pulpit into ourselves every day, into our families and family worship, into our children, into our own neighborhoods. We lift up the signal, Christ himself, crucified and raised, the ascended Messiah, come to me all who believe will be saved. So brothers and sisters, run to him, inquire of him, seek him, because his resting place is glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's no one like you. Coming in your humility to overthrow the serpent. Clad in the armor of righteousness by the Spirit, to defeat the ruler of this world. And Lord, we're amazed that you could have come to condemn us, but you first came to save us. Lord, any here who are not aware of their poverty spiritually, that they lack no merit before you that's acceptable, reveal to them their great need of Christ. Make them desperate for you. And Lord, continue to cultivate in us 
a spirit of poverty, to be poor in spirit, to hunger and thirst for your righteousness, Lord, which you satisfy us with. And Lord, we wait for your return to renew the cosmos. Help us to raise the signal of the gospel to all around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.